0: Hello, and welcome to the story of Singapore. Episode 11, Planned Obsolescence. On the 10th of October 1822, Raffles returned to Singapore for a third and final time. The last time Raffles was in the colony was about three and a half years ago. Back then, colonial Singapore was only three months old. The development of the Entreport was still in its earliest stages but the establishment of the colony inflamed tensions between the rivaling British and Dutch empires, threatening to unravel the whole project altogether. However, since then, tensions had simmered. With each passing day, the threat of war grew smaller and smaller, while the promise of a British Singapore grew bigger and bigger. In fact, trade in Singapore had been growing rather spectacularly. All thanks to Raffles, but no thanks to Fakwa. Just kidding. Raffles disdained Fakwa's administration of Singapore. The man believed Farqua had been left to his own devices for far too long. But this time, things were going to be different. This time, Raffles was going to wipe the slate clean and dismantle much of Farqua's work. It would be his longest and most active tenure with Singapore. Around eight months, which, if I were to be honest, was not at all a long time. But the eight months would prove to be an eventful period for Singapore. The first item on his agenda? Remodeling the entire town. Continuing his previous contention with Farqua, Raffles was adamant on relocating the European merchant community. The site originally designated by Raffles for the Europeans was East Beach, but it was geographically incompatible with their needs. Farquaad had to deviate from protocol and appease the merchants by permitting them to build on the north bank of the Singapore River, which had been reserved for government purposes. When Raffles conducted a survey of the land, it confirmed the merchants' intuitions. East Beach was not a viable location. So Raffles identified another possible site the south bank of the river. Now, the south bank had potential, but posed two main problems that led to Fakwa eschewing the location. Firstly, its swampy terrain would have made it expensive to clear, level, and drain the land. Secondly, raffles had originally assigned the area to the Chinese community, who had already established their kampongs or villages by then. In view of the current circumstances, Fakwa knew that the cost of preparing the site for construction and relocating two communities would have been exorbitant and uneconomical. Despite his earlier criticisms of Fakwa purportedly overspending on public works, Raffles did exactly what he accused Fakwa of doing. He disregarded the need for financial prudence and ordered the extraction of dirt from a small hill to fill the marshes and ready the South Bank for development. To call the project expensive would be an understatement. When Farquaad submitted his financial reports to the Bengal government in British India, he felt compelled to reiterate that they had been authorized by Raffles himself. Compounding his hypocrisy, his actions also contravened the two fundamental directives Hastings had set for Singapore that the European town was to be relocated to East Beach, and more crucially, that all development activities were to be postponed until the British officially confirmed their retention of Singapore. However, to justify the absolute necessity of his plans, Raffles convened and consulted with an advisory committee. Supposedly unbiased, the panel consisted of his friends all of whom were newcomers with little prior knowledge about the settlement. They approved his proposals without hesitation. Talk about corruption. Behind the scenes, the two men's quarrels picked up where they last left off. Even with substantial evidence and justification, Raffles remained unsatisfied with Farquhar's explanations on why he had permitted the European merchants to build on government land. Defending his actions yet again, Fakwa stressed that Singapore's impressive growth and prosperity was well beyond anything of a similar nature. Since the merchants had been playing a pivotal role in contributing to Singapore's economic development, it would be unfair for him to be censured for allocating the best land to the merchants. Raffles also accused Fakwa for not consulting him before implementing the new policy, but Faqua refuted the claim. Faqua pointed out that he had written to Raffles on the matter in April 1821, but received no objections until almost a year later, in March 1822, when Hastings' dispatch arrived. Besides, he had stuck to Raffles' primary instructions. All plots of land were granted conditionally, temporarily, and ultimately, subject to Raffles' revision. In other words, they were reversible. Wishing to close the matter once and for all, Farquaad appealed to Raffles to excuse small lapses in judgments brought about by unexpected and ambiguous situations, as well as the lack of information and precedence. While Farquaad understood that he would be held responsible for any failure arising from his deviations from protocols, he did not regret his actions thus far, believing them to be rational and pragmatic given the circumstances. All said and done, Fakwa reaffirmed his support for Raffles. Despite their many differences, he promised to put the past behind and let bygones be bygones. Whatever plans Raffles might have to develop the settlement, Faqua would assist to the best of his abilities as the resident of Singapore. However, he urged Raffles to exercise due caution and consideration for his upcoming programs. Following the success of Singapore's free port model, the Dutch had recently excised almost all their port duties and trade restrictions to make their ports competitive once more. Enacting policies detrimental to the interests of the merchant communities would only turn them away And back into the arms of the Dutch. Unfortunately, Raffles did not take kindly to Fakwa's words. He lambasted Fakwa for trying to take credit for the settlement's progress, implying that he had been the one who was responsible for Singapore's successes. Doubling down on his allegations again, Raffles asserted that Fakwa had disobeyed explicit orders by allowing construction on the North Bank. In addition to the previous charge of irregular land dealings, Raffles declared that the certificates of occupancy that Farquaad had been issuing to tenants had painted the false impression of permanency. Faqua must have been exasperated when he denied the charges for the umpteenth time. Meanwhile, Raffles was forging ahead with his urban redevelopment plans. A town committee was formed and key representatives from the main racial groups were invited to discuss a new layout for the settlement. faqua was not part of the committee. Adding insult to injury, Raffles appointed an assistant engineer, a rank much lower than faqua's to assist the committee in designing the new town plan. This urban plan would eventually become what we know today as the Jackson Plan, named after the assistant engineer or more commonly as the Raffles Town Plan. The ramifications of the Raffles Town Plan were far-reaching, and its legacy would endure the centuries to come. But we will get into the details, along with its political and sociocultural significance, in a later episode. For now, Fakwa had been relegated to the sidelines. Fakwa knew that, but cooperated with the committee regardless. Providing them with copies of his maps and materials, as well as advice when asked. When Fakwa questioned aspects of the new town plan, Raffles lashed out at Fakwa for voicing his disagreements without deference to authority and for attempting to sabotage his vision. Denying that he was intentionally obstructing Raffles, Fakwa retorted that as the resident of Singapore, he was free to express his opinions on policies that might impact the security and welfare of the population. Furthermore, though Farquhar was supervised by Raffles, he was ultimately liable to the Bengal government in British India for his public conduct and actions. Complaining that he had been coming under intense scrutiny from Raffles as if he had been put on trial, Farqua maintained that he deserved the right to defend his character through any just and honourable means necessary. In any case, Raffles was already preparing for the next phase of the development cycle. Using Farquaad's prejudicial land distribution as a basis, Raffles withdrew all of FAqua's certificates of occupancy, meaning that all the land granted by Farquaad were now invalidated. Then, in a drastic move, Raffles exploited the authority of the British East India Company, and repossess the land. Ironically, Raffles claiming that Fakwa was practicing favoritism and using it as the pretext for land resumption was laughable. Back in 1819, Raffles had ordered Fakwa to reserve the best plots of land for his cronies and himself, before granting the remainder by order of application. Fact is, Fakwa had not deviated from this instruction at all. While rolling out his land acquisition schemes, Raffles ordered buildings in the affected areas to be demolished and reconstructed in new zones outlined in the settlement's master plan. However, instead of doling out new annual leases to the tenants, Raffles intended to auction the land and impose a quit-rent system. Essentially, you have to not only outbid your competitors to buy a plot of land under the auction system, but also pay a fee every year to renew your right to hold on to the land under the quit-rent system. Of course, that raised some eyebrows. Fakwa had a couple of concerns on his own. For a start, why was Raffles making the tenants pay for new land when they were not being compensated for their existing lots? Lots which Raffles himself had originally assigned to them in 1819. Second of all, was it even legal to sell land? given that the British had yet to acquire Singapore, and given that the Malay rulers still owned Singapore? And finally, why were the tenants made to pay rent in addition to purchasing the land? Raffles simply sidestepped these questions. Anyone aggrieved by the process could lodge a complaint. And boy, did they lodge complaints. The Bugis community expressed qualms about the proposed mass relocation. The Chinese community signed a petition to appeal against the destruction of their homes which would plunge many families into extreme poverty. The European merchants vented their frustrations and protested about the hefty financial losses that would result from the termination of their leases and the demolition of their establishments. Attempting to resist the changes, some of the merchants turned uncooperative insinuating that Fakwa had granted them land in perpetuity. Once again, Fakwa was forced on the defensive. He had neither issued permanent land allotments nor promised compensation. However, Fakwa conceded that he might have downplayed the risks of constructing their quarters on the North Bank to entice the merchants to settle in Singapore. In the face of overwhelming opposition to his plans, Raffles was ready to bulldoze everyone. He assembled a town improvement committee to oversee the execution of his new policies. Francis Bernard, Farquhar's son-in-law, and more importantly, the settlement's police assistant, was reluctantly co-opted by Raffles into the committee since his police force was vital to evicting those who refused to vacate. Farquhar was not part of this committee either. These programs unsettled Farqua. Clearly, Raffles was putting his self-interest ahead of the greater good of the colony. The proposed changes were not only costly, unnecessary, and unjustifiable, they were also exerting considerable pressure on the social order, threatening to roll back the progress and sacrifices Fakwa had made in the past four years. Perhaps hoping for higher authority to stop Raffles, Fakwa urged Raffles to at least wait for a green light from the Bengal government before embarking on the project. But Raffles ignored his advice. Mitigating the situation, Fakwa then reminded Raffles that trading season was approaching and warned that the loss of Singapore's biggest warehouses now would have grave consequences on the general trade and security of property. As obstinate as Raffles was, he knew... Farquhar was right. The warehouses were granted a proverbial stay of execution. As you can imagine, land grants, land use and land redevelopment were not the only sources of contention between the two men. Their disputes spilled over into other administrative matters too. To reduce government expenditure, Raffles discontinued the military commissariat the department supplying food and logistics for the soldiers, in favour of a money allowance scheme where each soldier was responsible for buying his own meals. It was not feasible. There were simply not enough coins of smaller denominations circulating the local economy to support the increase in petty cash transactions. Compromising between Raffles' meal allowance policy and money supply problems on the ground, Fakwa arranged with the officers to bulk purchase food on behalf of their troops. In response, Raffles condemned Faqua for subverting his authority. Then, without rhyme or reason, Raffles shut down the hospital serving the poor and laid off the assistant surgeon, leaving the colony with only one doctor. Faqua objected to the needless termination of employment, but to no avail. And when Faqua published new general orders, Raffles, being of higher rank, immediately overturned the orders, only to have them reissued the next day under his own name. As an aside, I did not make this point clear in previous episodes. Though Raffles was indeed Farquhar's superior, Singapore was not under his direct jurisdiction. Technically, Farquhar was still THE local authority as directed by Hastings in 1818. On the other hand, Raffles was appointed by Hastings as Fakwa's overseer to advise his administration and occasionally keep him in check. Instead, it seemed Raffles was intent on domineering Fakwa. Anyway, the list goes on, but you get the idea. It was not just about Raffles going on a power trip and Fakwa cleaning up the mess. Raffles was actively supplanting Fakwa by subsuming his duties and responsibilities. Soon enough, Farquhar's role would be limited to the disbursement of funds to the town committee and the forwarding of dispatches to and from Raffles. The resident of Singapore had effectively been reduced to the insulting level of a treasurer and secretary. Worse still, Raffles had yet to play his dirtiest trick. Around January 1823, Raffles was afflicted with sickness once more, a reminder that he was on borrowed time. Desperate to oust Faqua from Singapore before his retirement, Raffles unleashed another barrage of charges against Fakwa in secret. As a matter of fact, Raffles had been writing to his pen pal Hastings about Faqua. But the month of January saw increased activity. Three separate letters were penned explaining why Faqua should be removed and imploring Hastings to send a replacement so that Raffles could officially retire. Faqua was accused of committing financial irregularities, squandering government funds and ignoring Raffles' calls for financial prudence, which led to a severe budget deficit that prevented Raffles from accomplishing his development goals. Yet, it was Raffles who siphoned Faqua's carefully accumulated reserves for his vanity project to remodel the town and cause Fakwa's low operating costs to skyrocket. Fakwa was accused of harbouring corrupt personnel within his administration and turning a blind eye to malfeasance and abuse of power. Yet, it was Raffles, who not only facilitated corruption for his cronies, but also installed his brother-in-law into Fakwa's administration in 1820. That brother-in-law subsequently exploited his privileges Worked against Fakwa and was the true cause of the irregularities that Raffles was citing. Fakwa was accused of succumbing to the whims of influential merchants and the Malay rulers, compromising his judgment and jeopardizing the rule of law. Yet it was Raffles who ordered Fakwa to strike a balance between the demands of the commercial sector and the prerogatives of the Malay rulers. As Singapore continued gaining strategic importance in the eyes of politicians back in London, Raffles stated that the responsibilities of the residents of Singapore had grown out of Fakwa's league. Though Raffles conceded that Fakwa had previously done a remarkable job in administering Malacca, he followed up by belittling Fakwa's experience and track record, asserting that the administrative burdens of managing Singapore was nothing close to those of Malacca. In short, Fakwa was totally incompetent for the job. Raffles ended his allegations on a pathetic note, proclaiming that, honest to God, he had absolutely no desire to besmirch Fakwa's reputation. And right after sending the third letter, Raffles unceremoniously informed Fakwa to prepare to relinquish his office to a successor. Fakwa was shell shocked. By the time the letters reached the Calcutta office, Hastings was no longer the man in charge of the Bengal government. Implicated in a corruption scandal, he resigned from office and departed British India in the earlier part of the year. Taking over as acting Governor-General of British India was Hastings' political secretary, a man named John Adam. Adam would be the one reviewing and addressing the case against Fakwa. Back in Singapore, Farquaad insisted that he had never formally applied for a permanent relief from his post. Clarifying that his previous request in 1820 to resign and take a leave of absence was overridden by his subsequent declaration in 1821 of his wishes to delay his departure until the British and Dutch had reached consensus on Singapore, Farquaad called for the cancellation of his resignation and leave request, official or implied. However, there was no stopping the wheels of destiny. The charges leveled against Fakwa were too egregious to be ignored by the Bengal government. Failing to reflect on the accuracy of the reports from Raffles, Adam was unaware that he was relying on fictitious accounts and fabricated lies. Unfortunately for Farqua, the bomb was ticking. In the meantime, Raffles delighted in making Fakwa's life hell. In February 1823, he reopened a complaint that a merchant named John Morgan had lodged against Farquhar. A year ago in February 1822, after being denied land in Singapore, Morgan wrote to Farquhar, condemning him for breaches of professional conduct and ethics. The message accused Farquhar of granting land unfairly, of speculating in opium, and of issuing his son Andrew Farquhar a permit to export rice when rice exports were forbidden in Singapore. These were pure libels. Fakwa forwarded the defamatory statements to Raffles and demanded that action be taken against Morgan. But the move backfired. Indeed, Raffles regarded Morgan's language to Farquaad distasteful. However, he not only took issue with Faqua's tone to Morgan as well, but he also accepted Morgan's version of events as true and publicly censured Fakwa for his alleged offences. Indignant, Fakwa composed a letter, rebutting Morgan's accusations, and requested Raffles to forward the relevant documents to the Calcutta office. When Raffles demanded to see the contents of the letter, Fakwa refused. Since he was making an appeal in his capacity as the resident of Singapore against a decision Raffles had made, Fakwa offered to write, unvetted by Raffles, indirectly to the Bengal government. Raffles blew up. Deeming it as an act of insolence, Raffles rebuffed Fakwa and threatened to suspend him. Fakwa had no right to make that appeal without his explicit permission. Raffles added that if Fakwa felt personally affronted by his judgment, he could address the Bengal government only as a private individual not in his official status. Left with little choice, Fakwa yielded the letter to Raffles. Only then did Raffles forward the complete documents to the Calcutta office. In March 1823, Raffles pounced on Fakwa again. Raffles gripped Fakwa about why he was not respecting British military traditions and not donning the uniform. Fakwa claimed that the uniform was only compulsory when performing active military duties, as was standard practice in British India. Nonetheless, Raffles considered it conduct unbecoming of an officer and told on Fakwa to the Commander in Chief in British India behind Fakwa's back. This time, however, Fakwa caught wind of Raffles' deeds. Confronting Raffles, Fakwa protested that he should have been alerted so that he could send in his counter-arguments along with the original accusation of misconduct. It was only fair that the authorities be given both sides of the story before they deliberate over the matter. Raffles nonchalantly replied that having read Farqua's justifications, he thought it unnecessary to follow up on the subject. Fakwa could, if he so desired, write in his clarifications. Official channels and communication were not the only battlegrounds on which Raffles waged his smear campaign against Faqua. Raffles also engaged his personal network, spinning a web of gossip to turn influential figures within the company against Faqua. Together, they covertly lobbied against Faqua and his clique of supporters. As the negative propaganda spread, Faqua was beginning to catch on to the fact that his superior was undermining him the entire time. When he finally heard rumours that Raffles had been poisoning the well and pressing the Bengal government for his replacement, Fakwa pleaded with the Bengal government. Highlighting his 33 years of meritorious service to the company, he condemned the case against him as an attack so devious, so devoid of truth, that it warranted an official investigation into the matter to exonerate himself. As he was not aware of the specificities, and therefore could not refute their allegations at the current juncture, Farqua implored the Bengal government to avoid coming to a conclusion without conducting a formal inquiry. Unbeknownst to Farqua, Adam had already reached a decision. In April 1823, Raffles was preparing to transfer the settlement of Singapore into the custody of the Bengal government. From the 1st of May onwards, Singapore would be governed as a dependency of British India, rather than as an independent colony. Farquaad interpreted the news as a positive one, in that it signified an end to Raffles' dominion over Singapore. But the man was in for a rude awakening. Just before the month of April closed, Raffles announced that he was stripping Farquaad of his duties as the resident of Singapore and taking charge indefinitely. Farquaad was stumped by the audacity. He argued that since he had been appointed by Hastings, only the Bengal government had the legal right to remove him from office. When Fakwa demanded to see an authorization letter, Raffles simply directed Fakwa to Hastings' original directive in 1818. Fakwa asserted that it only placed him under Raffles' general supervision. It did not, however, permit Raffles to directly interfere in local matters, much less usurping local authority. Regardless, for the sake of keeping the peace, Fakwa declared that he would obey the order, while submitting a public protest to the Bengal government and requesting for a formal investigation. In sharp contrast, Raffles dug his heels in the sand. He homed in on Fakwa's earlier comment regarding the end to his authority with Singapore's Hanover. In yet another letter to the Bengal government, Raffles denounced Fakwa for rallying support among the scourge of society to challenge his authority. He also insinuated that Fakwa was commanding troop loyalty and planning a coup to turn Singapore into a sovereign state. On the 19th of May, 1823, the bomb was dropped. Fakwa received word that the Bengal government was sending in his replacement and that the appointment had already been published in the Calcutta Press. Fakwa questioned if his dismissal had been instigated by Raffles, but Raffles coldly replied that Fakwa's appointment had always been intended to be temporary. Twisting the knife, Raffles explained that as the new resident of Singapore would be directly answerable to the Bengal government, Fakwa was unqualified for the job, because he had relied on Raffles for every decision. Three days later, the official dispatch arrived and the news was confirmed. Back in March, the Bengal government had already accepted Fakwa's resignation of 1820 and appointed John Crawford as the second resident of Singapore. Fakwa was in complete disbelief. He asked if Raffles had forwarded his request to cancel his resignation. But Raffles dodged the question, stating that the Bengal government had all the details to his case. Furthermore, the choice of Crawford was strange. He was a 40-year-old surgeon with only 5 years of administrative experience from 1811 to 1816, compared to Farquaad's running 19 years. Not to mention, Crawford's 5 years was spent in Java, where he was answerable to Raffles. The idea that Crawford would be a more competent administrator than Faqua was simply bizarre. Nevertheless, another five days later, Farquhar's official replacement arrived in Singapore. So here we are at last. On the 27th of May, 1823, after nearly four years and four months, William Farquhar's stewardship of Singapore came to an end. He was the first resident of Singapore for the past four years and four months. Four years and three months, if you count raffles, illegally removing him from office. Fakwa was very much the spark that lit the fuse for British Singapore. His administration had to tackle the logistical nightmare of developing a new settlement from scratch. But worst of all, it was plagued with problems posed by scarce resources and toxic managers. However, Fakwa rose to the challenge and passed with flying colours. As its de facto founder, he witnessed a colony under extraordinary geopolitical circumstances. The ancient port city of Singapore, forgotten and in ruins, was thus transformed into a thriving British entrepot, standing fast and defiantly against the Dutch in their own domain. But Faqua's story will not end here. Next episode. Fakwa will tie up loose ends and say his farewells. Unsure if it will be his last time, he will depart Singapore and sail for British India to seek justice for his sufferings. However, he will find no salvation there. Alright then, if the Bengal government will not hear his plea, then Fakwa shall escalate the matter and brawl it out with raffles in court.